Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 429 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Solar Observations and the Last EVA. Throughout the whole third Skylab mission, the Apollo Telescope Mount Solar Observations were an area that received considerable attention. Ed Gibson recalled, quote, When we studied the sun, we used the Apollo Telescope Mount panel to monitor and control seven different instruments that looked at the sun in visible light rays all the way down to X-rays. Even though I helped design the panel, it was still a highly demanding and sometimes humbling task. Choices had to be continually made in space, time, and wavelength, sometimes within seconds, for experiment observations and then translated into panel switch actuations. The joint observing programs helped quite a bit, but the real value of having a human at the controls was when targets of opportunity arose and we would have to put the sheet music away and play more by ear. I had a background in plasma physics from Caltech. Of course, the sun is one big ball of hot plasma. And I also had studied solar physics ever since I knew I had a chance to fly Skylab. I used the writing of a textbook as a way to focus my efforts and gain more credibility to help put my body into one of the three front row seats on launch day. I still found the Apollo telescope mount a major challenge and empathized with other crewmen whose expertise lay elsewhere. However, after being an operator of Skylab and the Apollo Telescope Mount for 84 days, I feel strongly that mental challenges of this magnitude are essential to maintain sanity on future long-duration missions. The most demanding task was trying to figure how to capture the birth of a flare, which lasts only a minute or two. Understanding a flare's triggering mechanism is essential if we are ever going to be able to predict 
when and where flares will occur. The difficulty came in because almost all instruments used film to record their data. A limited supply of film that could be rapidly consumed during the high data acquisition rates required by flare observations. We had only so much film on board and a limited number of EVAs to replace it. Thus, we were in a catch-22 situation. How do you know when to go into flare observations until a flare is well underway? That is, past its birth and well into its teenage years. It took a while to get the hang of it, and the extreme ultraviolet light monitor was indispensable. It was in the extreme ultraviolet monitor that one could see an active region start to simmer. It was almost like watching a pot of water getting ready to boil. When were the releases of points of extreme ultraviolet radiation, like the formation of little bubbles on the bottom of a pan, rapid and intense enough to predict the eruption of a flare, like large bubbles exploding upward to bring chaos to the water? Late in the mission, I intently stood guard over the Apollo telescope mount panel during my scheduled times of Apollo telescope mount operation or any of my free time. After many hours of concentration and a few cases of infant mortality, I did catch a flare very early in its life, maybe even just a toddler. It was much earlier than we had been able to get data up to that time. I am confident that the given high-resolution displays of the high-energy emissions from the sun, extreme ultraviolet, and x-rays, and the time to really study them, the true birth of a flare could be observed. Of course, these days, the problem can be brute-forced by continuous acquisition of electronic data on active regions at ultra-high rates. End quote. A NASA press release at the time explained, quote, A solar flare recorded on January 21, 1974, by the Skylab 4 mission has created considerable excitement within the worldwide solar physics community. The flare was not large by comparison with those recorded on previous Skylab flights. Ground observers classified it as a medium-sized flare. The excitement stemmed from the news that for the first time in the history of the Skylab missions, a solar flare was recorded from beginning through its expiration. End quote. Ed Gibson recalled, quote, Also on our mission, the liftoff of a huge prominence of the link was observed by the chronographic instrument. The resulting data yielded one of the classic pictures resulting from all of the ATM missions. The Solar Observatory in Hawaii saw the prominence start to lift off and notify the Apollo Telescope Mount scientist in Houston. It was night for us, so all three of us were fast asleep. Fortunately, the chronograph was one instrument that could be operated remotely by the ground. Okay, uh, 
We had a number of, of things here that uh, we've learned that you might find interesting. Probably the most relevant one seems to be a, uh, a tendency for the coronal holes at the poles to be biggest when the magnetic fields in the southern hemisphere, well, when the magnetic fields in that hemisphere are of the same sign as the uh, polar field, and they tend to be smaller when uh, it's of opposite sign and there's a filament channel. So if the South Pole has a strong polar cap today, we uh, would uh, guess that uh, the magnetic field not far from it has a minus polarity, black on these pictures that we have down here. And uh, we did notice a few days ago when this uh, coronal hole that you're talking about today near the, near the southwest limb, when that was more or less disk center and apparently almost connected to the South Pole, there was a large negative magnetic field region more or less uh, centered along the, the central meridian and in the southern hemisphere approaching the pole. What does that say about the construction of a coronal hole itself and how it originates? I think it's consistent with this diverging magnetic field idea. In other words, the field, uh, magnetic field in the coronal hole is a diverging magnetic field. And uh, why that makes it dark there, I, don't ask me. The field strengths have been observed to be relatively low, though, in the center of the hole. More or less on the average. Pretty much vertical and, and low. As far as I know. As I mentioned last time, mission extensions were approved for a week at a time as the ground carefully monitored the status of the spacecraft, the crew, and the supplies. On January 17th, the crew officially got another extension. Here's the NASA press release, quote, title, Crew Given Go for Another Week in Space. Astronauts Carr, Gibson, and Pogue, now in their 63rd day in space, were given the go for another seven days. For the remainder of the mission, weekly evaluations of crew, consumables, and hardware will be made by NASA officials. The second weekly review was completed this afternoon following the review of the in-flight medical data and the recommendation of Dr. Charles A. Berry, NASA's Director for Life Science, William C. Snyder, Skylab Program Director, gave approval for the mission to continue until at least January 24th, end quote. This extension would allow Bill Pogue to celebrate his birthday in space on January 23rd, 1974, and on that day, he turned 44 years old. DLT Houston, uh, when you get a chance, no hurry, I'd like to speak to you for a second. Roger, Bill, uh, all your friends down here on the Purple Gang would like to wish you a happy birthday this morning. We sure hope you have a nice day, and I've, I've got a special uh, message on tape that I think you'll enjoy hearing. Well, thank you,
sure. Hang in there. Hey, Nick, that's a city green. I wish I could hug them all. I know you do, Bill. Happy birthday to you. Thanks again. That was Bill Pogue's family singing to him. The extension until January 24th came in spite of the fact that there was still an anomaly going on with gyro number two. And the ground was still anticipating a full 84-day mission. However... As a precautionary measure, the recovery ship was going to set sail on January 26th, just in case the crew did have to come back early. expectation here in Mission Control is that with or without CMG number two, the mission will be completed, and uh, a splashdown on February 8th is still anticipated. And as an initial bit of information, one of the prime topics of discussion during the last half hour here in Mission Control has been the meals for day 84 and day 85, that is to say for February 7th and 8th, the final days of the Skylab mission, and there's been a good deal of discussion about what the menu should consist of during those final days. Uh, Some changes being made to the food plans for the February 7th and February 8th days. So uh, concern is not particularly high here about uh, an immediate shortening of the mission. However, uh, as we have indicated before, the ship will be sailing on January 26th to give us optimum capacity for recovery in the event of other failures that are not yet anticipated. This anomaly on CMG number two is still underway at 1854 Greenwich Mean Time as we went over the hill at Bermuda. The anomaly is uh, the longest seen so far on CMG number two. began at 535 this morning GMT. That means that it's been going on now for about 13 and a half hours. However, there has not been any sign of worsening, and if anything, over the U.S., I think we saw some indications that perhaps there is a recovery underway. Although the wheel speed has not yet come up, the currents have come down slightly. Uh, That's an indication that they may be returning to normal, although this is certainly one of the longest and uh, in many ways the most serious of the CMG anomalies. In the previous episode, I spent a little time discussing the effects of Skylab's long-term missions on the crew and the station. But the duration of these missions also had an effect on the ground crews of the Skylab program. Neil Hutchinson, a flight director, recalled that Mission Control was also feeling the effects of the passing months, saying, quote, It wasn't like a prize fight where you train, fight, and it's over. In Apollo and now the early shuttle flights, you train and train, and train, then the mission goes. You work your tail off for a number of days, and the mission's over. Skylab was never over. Neil continued, Chuck Lewis, another Skylab flight director, got very ill, and I flew the last flight with a kidney problem that ended up in a very serious surgery. It's not serious anymore, but in those days it was, it really, really took a lot out of people because you never got loose from it. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. We had our families in the control center for affairs to try and change the pace of things. I held a big dinner. Maybe all the flight directors did. It was a big sit-down catered dinner in the control center while the spacecraft was still up, but during one of those times between manned missions. 
We were just trying to keep people's focus and attention. Still, we had guys drop out of the teams, and we had to change players. It wasn't that the control center was wilting on Skylab 4. It really was the sum of the three missions. We were on duty for nine months. But by the latter part of Skylab 4, both the crew and mission control were feeling really good because it was all going dramatically better. It became obvious we would get everything done and then some, and everyone could see the light at the end of the tunnel. As the last weeks of Skylab 4 went by, we all felt better and better. End quote. Now changing subjects, on Mission Day 70, January 25th, the rookie crew exceeded Albine's previous record of 69 days and 15 hours. On their inaugural mission, they became the new holders of the world endurance record, with two weeks still remaining. Skylab crew will begin their 1,000th revolution of the Earth at Greenwich Mean Time, 19 hours and 43 minutes, 17 minutes from now. The crew will also set a record tomorrow morning at 12.46 a.m. on January 25th when they match Al Bean's record of 69 days, 15 hours, 49 minutes. Al Bean's record uh, combined total of his Apollo 12 flight and the mission of Skylab 3. While we're looking up this uh, storage info, I've got an item I'm sure you'll be interested in. Fire away, Dick. Roger. Uh, you three guys last evening at a time of 0546 Zulu became the undisputed world space champions. You passed uh, Al Bean's total flight time record, and uh, that record was 69 days, 15 hours, 45 minutes, and 29 seconds. So we're the Purple Gang is very happy to be the guys that get to congratulate you as the undisputed space champs of the world. Dick and Purple Team, uh, thank you very much for keeping us up here. Good work. Dick, thanks a lot. You know, records are made to be broken, and I'm sure sooner or later someone will break this one. I'm sure you're right, Jerry, but I think it's going to be a while, so congratulations to all three of you guys. Thanks a lot, Purple People. Roger. And if all of you are within earshot of a speaker box, I've got a message for you. Press on, Bruce. Okay, I quote, Congratulations on breaking the last remaining manned spaceflight duration record, and especially for the outstanding work you've done and are continuing to do in the fields of space science, space applications, and in learning about man's reaction to space. Keep up the good work. See you soon. End quote. Signed, James C. Fletcher and George M. Lowe. Over. Roger, Bruce. Uh, we copy you. Thank you very much for the kind words. And uh, we want to thank everybody on the ground that's been helping us. We certainly uh, needed a lot of help, and we received it. Thank you. Okay, and we're all looking forward to seeing you back here in the not-too-far-distant future. We're certainly looking forward to being back there, I can tell you that. We have an announcement from the Skylab Program Office. Also on January 25th, the crew got another seven-day extension. 
Skylab Program Director William C. Schneider today reported that the third Skylab mission, now in its 70th day, has been given a seven-day extension. Approval for the record-breaking mission to continue at least until, until at least January 31st, followed review of the in-flight medical data and the recommendation of Dr. Charles A. Berry, NASA Director for Life Sciences, and an evaluation of Skylab's consumables and hardware status. That concludes the announcement uh, clearing Skylab for the coming seven days. NASA was always thinking about the future, and in that vein, even though there were no formal plans to revisit Skylab after this mission, still NASA decided to have the astronauts prepare a revisit bag for the next possible crew that might visit the station. A couple other things that we are going to do uh, while you're still there is that we're going to operate the ATM thermal control system, uh, the secondary system, which we've never used in Skylab. And then we're going to restart the primary system uh, to take a look at the restart characteristics. Uh, in conclusion, although we have no firm plans for any revisit to Skylab at the moment, we're going to have you put together a uh, what we're calling a revisit bag which could be retrieved by any revisit crew to bring home so we could take a look at uh, how the items have survived uh, the uh, long term and the vacuum that they'll be seeing. Uh, you'll be getting a message on this. We've got it on the tubes down here tonight. We'll probably uh, get that message up to you uh, this evening and it'll allow you to put your together Skylab's own little time capsule to stick in the MDA and leave. We're not planning to uh, schedule this item. We figure you can just do this uh, on your own time. A few days later, the crew conducted another news conference from Skylab. Letter rep. Roger, the first uh, question, Jerry, is for you, for Commander Carr. What do you feel have been the major accomplishments of this mission, and have you proven that man can pretty much do as he wants to in space, considering working, living, and repairs? I think the major accomplishments uh, in this uh, particular mission are, uh, are several. I think the biggest major accomplishment is the uh, uh, the tenure, the, the length of the stay. We've shown that man can uh, do what we thought he could do, and that is come up here and, and set up housekeeping in space, that um, he can uh, adjust to his new environment. And I think from a medical standpoint, the medical experiments have already shown uh, so far that uh, uh, we right now appear to be in better physical condition than when we left. And um, I think the other accomplishments are, uh, in particular, Ed will probably get an opportunity to talk about it, but in the solar area, I think the fact that we managed to catch the full rise of a solar flare is a significant uh, event. The fact that we caught the brightest coronal transient that's been seen from up here, I think is significant. In the area of Earth resources, we have uh, uh, done nearly 45 Earth resources passes around the Earth. Uh, we've gathered a heck of a lot of data, and uh, I think that is indeed significant. And last but not least, we took the time before we left to do some study on, on how to do Earth observations from out the window and do handheld photography. Let me add a couple things on there. Um, we also had, I think, quite an extensive comet observing program. And uh, although the brightness of the comet was not what was predicted, I think the all-out effort, which uh, people all around the world put on it, and particularly up here, where we were able to make a large number of attitude excursions of the vehicle and point at the comet, uh, learn something of its spectra, which is going to tell us what it's composed, I think is a very significant achievement. This uh, next question is for Bill Polk. 
Now that your mission is almost over, do you feel disappointed about any aspect of your flight? Well, I don't think so, really. I think that we feel like, as as I've already been said here, we feel like that we've done very well in spite of uh, some of the adverse circumstances. Looking back, uh, a couple of things we mentioned in particular were the repair of the uh, primary coolant loop, which was conducted and uh, completed early in our flight, carrying on from what Ed said from the earlier flight. So that was a major repair job and represented a task that had not been done before. We also have worked outside the UVA and made two major uh, mods or repairs, uh, sort of combination of the two, on one of the radar antennas, which was a part of the Earth Resources Package, and also on the Apollo telescope mount. One of those uh, telescopes was malfunctioning. So, uh, by and large, I think that uh, we have, although we would have liked to maybe have had everything working 100% in view of the fact that it wasn't, we've done very well in spite of that fact, and we feel like we'll be bringing back the best data possible for the situation that existed when we got here. You guys have been in space longer than anyone before. What psychological and mental problems do you foresee for space travelers on very long flights to, say, Mars? Uh, I think probably the psychological problems that you would probably face on a mission that long would be the same kind of psychological problems you get uh, up north in the winter when you're locked in the cabin for months or uh, on an island. Island fever, cabin fever, that sort of thing. That is the, the lack of the ability to uh, get away. Uh, you're stuck with the surroundings and there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about changing your surroundings. And so what you need to design into future spacecraft that are gonna do things like go to Mars, is you're gonna have to design lots of, uh, of uh, ways to divert yourself. Uh, re uh, recreation, uh, reading, uh, things like that. You've got, you've got to be able to, uh, as we say in the flying game, you've got to be able to close the hangar doors when you go home. And when you're on a year or two year mission, you're going to have to have a place that you can call home, and you're going to have to be able to go to that and be by yourself or do what you want to do. And uh, I think that's probably the major psychological problem we're going to have to work out. I think the submariners understand this too. The guys who spend 30 to 60 days underwater most certainly do understand this problem too, and they're working it as well as we are. It is not commonly known, but the Skylab 4 crew collected data to assist the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that is NOAA. As a result of that work, NOAA wanted to send up a message through Capcom thanking the astronauts. Uh, that's all I got, and I uh, wanted to pass you up some thanks from NOAA in the back room for the help that you've given them in their uh, solar forecast with your unique data. Well, we sure appreciate uh, the NOAA folks. Uh, matter of fact, um, I think we appreciate the work of everybody involved in this. Uh, we've kind of reached a, uh, the end of a phase here, if you will, in ATM. We still have a major phase left, and that's uh, all the data analysis. And uh, over the years, we're going to see a lot of that uh, turning into some pretty... Uh, I think productive and uh, useful results and a lot of understanding of the sun will result. I think the uh, quality and the quantity of the data that we've gotten out of ATM has uh, far exceeded uh, early expectations. They certainly have mining. I'm sure they have other people. Uh, the quality of the data that we're getting out, however, I think is uh, a direct result of the quality of the people that we've had working it. We've had about, uh, I would guess, uh, thousands of people working this uh, ATM for many years now and the results are going to give a large step forward in our understanding of the sun.
think everybody who's been involved in it should take pride in what is really their accomplishment. I know the three of us up here certainly have uh, been happy to be a part of it. And we thank uh, everybody out down there on the ground for giving us uh, excellent support during the mission. Okay, Ed, uh, thanks for the words, and we certainly want to thank the three of you for the excellent job that you've done. The uh, quality of data that we'll be getting back is due in no small part to the work that you three guys have done. During the early planning stages, the Skylab 4 crew was to have undertaken only two EVAs, the last occurring on Mission Day 54, a few weeks before their return to Earth. The only task slated for the EVA was retrieval of all the Apollo telescope mount film. The actual last Skylab 4 EVA, that was EVA number 4, took place on February 3, 1974, Mission Day 80, just a few days before the crew was scheduled to return to Earth. The EVA lasted 5 hours and 19 minutes and totaled 16 tasks, including collecting all sample and film cassettes from the Apollo telescope mount instruments. Ed Gibson and Jerry Carr used the backup clothesline film transfer device to move film, collectors, and a camera back and forth between the Apollo telescope mount and the airlock. Gibson secured himself in the gold-painted or golden slipper foot restraints on the Apollo telescope mount. Gerald Carr demonstrated hand-over-hand movement along a tether. The astronauts completed the Earth atmosphere photography begun on their first EVA by taking photographs between their Apollo telescope mount film removal task. Astronauts then mounted the micrometeoroid particle collector experiment on the Apollo telescope mount. NASA hoped that the experiment could be collected by space shuttle astronauts during a Skylab visit in the early 1980s. During quiet moments on the EVA, when he looked down at Earth, Gibson felt as if gravity might pull him down. But he leaned back and stared into the cosmos. The vista before him was magnificent. As Carr and Gibson returned to the airlock and closed the hatch, they also closed the door on the final extravehicular activity of the pioneering era of American space missions. There were no EVAs planned for the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975. The next time an American would venture outside a spacecraft would be on a space shuttle flight, and that was eventually nine years later. In less than a decade, from June 1965 to February 1974, American astronauts had learned to effectively work in Earth orbit and left their footprints on the moon and had walked in space. The first American EVA by Ed White was through a Gemini hatch, and it was fitting that the last of the era should be through a similar hatch. And now here are the clips from EVA number four. Hey, Ed, I 
Ted, look. There's the whole of San Joaquin Valley over there. See it? Hold on. The Sierras, the San Joaquin Valley, the Salton Sea. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. So we're out over Arizona, probably, Flagstaff. I can see the Grand Canyon from in here. Yeah, there it is. Lake Powell. Let's take a look at that Garlock Fault, see where that runs to Las Vegas. That's a little bit too far yeah. out to the west of us. Yeah, you can't get good definition, can you? Uh-huh, not from here. Beautiful. We sure got a pretty country, Houston. That it is. Okay, back to the salt mines. Okay, now. Yeah, we're getting bad over Salt Lake City right now. Okay. Hold on, Bill. I'm trying to get this thing lined up, and until you get the sun. You want Stodak on Foxtrot 5, aft a Kim Stowhook. Below clothesline and lock. Below clothesline. Well, Stodak on F5 aft a temporary stowage hook. I think that should uh, probably tell you where to put it. Pretty clothesline interference. Put it below the clothesline and lock it. Well, alright. I'm having trouble visualizing it myself. Well, but the problem is we don't have the clothesline out or, or hooked up down to the. You want to uh, put your tether on there? Yeah, I sure better. Make, make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's the point. Now, we want to get going on the clothesline, or we want to do a TO-25? You've got about another 17 minutes until the window opens for TO-25, so you can time it accordingly. We feel you're pretty well set up already. And, uh, all right, you need to put the clothesline on my right wrist. Yep. Okay, I'm going to read. Okay, watch yourself now. Again, keep a low profile. Right. You want me to read the settings to you, Ed? Uh, just a second until uh, we get set here, because now I have to have you read them again. Watch your left foot has got the clothesline. Yeah. Okay. Okay, you want to move? Uh, you need to put a clothesline on my wrist. Okay, let's take a look at your uh, umbilical. i got to anchor myself. All right, you're going to have to come back, too. Because you've got to put the clothesline around the other side. I'll, I'll do it down there. All right. All right, now I'll just hang here until you're ready. All right, I've got to move the clothesline back under the restraining hook here. Okay, let's hear the good words on the friendly DAC there, Bill. T8 or F8. Well, hold on, we got to move the friendly DAC up to its location. Okay. To EB1, remove DAC and attach the VS clothesline hooks and lock. Is that what you wanted? Attach the DAC to the clothesline? That's what it says. You said read the words on the, on the DAC. I didn't know quite what all you wanted. I figured you just wanted the settings, but it also has that in there, too. So you can see those uh, volcanics south of San Quentin. Beautiful country. Glad to be coming back to it. Say that again. And we worked the clothesline story. It worked out uh, pretty swift. No, no real uh, hang-ups with it at all. Yeah, you're okay. Okay. What I had to do was uh, give you a little more play on the clothesline itself. Yeah, I thought it was good. Tank in there tight. Uh, transfer VS clothesline to VC. Connect VS. Is this, is this making sense? No. Nope. 
We, we know what you're saying, so just press on in a hurry, Bill. Connect BS clothesline hook to right glove. Release hooks from BS clothesline. Connect BC clothesline hooks together. Resto DC clothesline bracket. Straighten BS clothesline. That's all for EB2. Right. Press. Okay. Uh, assist. EB1 assist. And then when we come to uh, clip BC EB1, clip BC clothesline under clip on F5. EB2 LSU clothesline. That's through. BT and BS ops. Clothesline attached bracket. Same problem. I get a safety diver to do it. Yeah. He's to lock in place. It's locked. Attach clothesline hook to bracket and lock hook. Okay. <laughs> Boy, that thing's strong. <laughs> we could cinch the workshop over parallel to the ATM with that thing. Line hook to bracket, lock hook. Done. Straight clothesline. Done. Rotate base link until locked. Okay, that's in work. You know, Jerry? It's uh, locked. Hey, locked! Good. Okay. I hate to tell you this, but uh, the clothesline from point to point describes a perfect straight line through TO25. Right. We're going to have to really be careful with that. Yep. Back and attach the VS clothesline hooks and lock. I think I will attack clothesline hook first. I'm going to leave this wrist tether on it, Jared. You may need it. Okay, good. And then transfer the DAC to the BT. Tell you what else let's do. Let's uh, hook the two clothesline hooks together, or we're going to be hurting for uh, slack to work around here. Yes. This uh, extra vehicle activity appears to be going well. The crew is now uh, making preparations, uh, hooking up the transportation device, the clothesline, making preparations to go up and retrieve the SO-82A and SO-82B film. Okay, come on, friendly duck. Attach back to clothesline and lock, transfer back to DF, remove back and attach to the and, uh, five handrail. Here, after you've gotten all the required back there, go ahead and shoot it up. Take anything you'd like. Oh, beautiful. Okay. I thought maybe you had some other plans later. No, we thought you'd like that. That's neat. Tell you what, Jerry, why don't you uh, save a little for uh, coming from this angle and we can get you working uh, the sun and uh, trees. I think that's a good idea. How about you? If you've got a chance, come and stick your nose in the window right there by the pass. See if we can get your shining face.
Okay, sorry, we got all the samples taken in. Uh, we're just finishing up the Nikon work, and uh, we'll be all set to start packing it all back into the airlock. You better start pulling in my umbilical head. Uh-oh. Well, I better get down there where I can do it. I get my warm, young, tender, pink little bod down in there. You know, I've got a few pieces of gear hanging around here. I sure do. Along with ropes. Tethers. Hey, this SOP was not made to avoid hang-ups. Can you see me, Drew? Yeah. Okay, what, what, what am I hanging up on this? On the closed line? And what part of me is hanging up? Your whole backside. If someone ever told me we'd be working in this environment two or three years ago, I would have said they were crazy. No way. Okay, Ed, where are you right now? With my umbilical tangled around my feet. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Just a minute, I need a... Now you're going the wrong... No, I need a counter with her, Bill. Yeah, but that's the wrong way if you're going to go that way. There's the right way. I lost control, Story. We copy and we know what that feels like. <laughs> Both the Wepperdells and the control. <laughs> okay, put my umbilical in, Monsieur, and I shall entree. Okay. Okay, Go uh, I'm going to start reading. You can pay attention if you want or not. Verify. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. Verify closed lines are stowed properly and EVE area secure. So make sure you didn't leave anything out there. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 429 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab 4, Solar Observations, and the Last EVA. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, January 6th, 2024. That is three weeks from now. As always, I'm going to take the Christmas week off, one week off for Christmas. So, this is the uh, final episode of 2023. And as such, I will play the traditional Apollo 8 Christmas message at the end of the episode. So stick around if you would like to hear that. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted... You can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. Well, of course, it's Christmas season once again, and I'd like to give a bonus award to my donors. If you gave $100 or more this year and did not get a magnet, email me and we will send you one. Uh, we're running low on the standard magnet, so it will probably be the archive magnet since we have more of those. Also, if you 
gave $50 to $99 this year and you want a sticker, just email me with your address and we will send it out to you. The deadline for this is December 31st, 2023. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 247 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You have to put the word in archive. You have to put that in the search term or else you won't find the archive one. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist, and you can follow me on Facebook as well. And at Patreon, I am at patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. As usual, I have some afterthoughts. First of all, I want to apologize for my mispronunciations. We are reaching the end of the third mission to Skylab. Everything has gotten better as the mission has progressed. The crew is more comfortable. They have a reasonable schedule. They have become very proficient. And I want you to notice how much these rookies have grown during the past 80 days to become grizzled veterans and even setting the space duration record. A tremendous improvement from where they started out. Think back on the first days, how much they struggled. And the improvement from where they are right now is just amazing. Of course, the station was going downhill. That number two gyro problem seemed to be getting worse. Plus, there were leaks and other problems. But a key limiting factor, really, was the food supply. They couldn't possibly stay past the 84 days without going into starvation mode. And additionally, there were no more butter, butter cookies left, so they had, NASA had to bring them back. <laughs> I also want you to contemplate that the fourth EVA, the last one for this crew, was the last United States EVA until the shuttle error. No more EVAs for nine years. That was a long time. In space years especially, considering how quickly the U.S. space program progressed over the previous nine years. I'm really looking forward to next year because there is a little more about Skylab that may surprise you, and I can't wait to tell you about it. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you don't know anything about this, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. And, of course, I plan on covering the return of Skylab to Earth. That was an interesting time, I, re I recall. <laughs> then uh, we will continue with the other major space events of 1973. Finally, in personal news, the day after I recorded last episode, I came down with COVID. I got it from Mrs. SRH, who is a day or two ahead of me. You can kind of tell it in my voice if you listen closely. I'm kind of struggling through this. I think I am mostly over it but I do have a lingering cough. And the other th weird thing is I can't smell things. 
which affects my sense of taste as well. Would you believe I can eat peanut butter crackers without tasting the peanut butter? Really, without tasting the cracker, too, I guess. I guess it's the textures I mainly experience. <laughs> the cracker, the cra- a peanut butter cracker, to me, tastes like it's just a, a cracker with a butter spread on it. I, I can't, it's so weird not to be able to taste something so distinctive as peanut butter. It's, and, and I love peanut butter. And it, it's, it's weird to not even be able to detect that I'm eating peanut butter. When I'm eating it, it's, it's just weird. I hope that I'm going to get my taste sense back. If not, I'm really going to miss it. And that, that I guess smell has a lot of effect because I can't smell stuff either. I've lost my smell. <laughs> I can't smell that, which is a blessing and a curse in some respects. <laughs> but uh, I can't smell. I'm hoping that's going to come back. I don't know how long it's supposed to take, but my good, uh, my wife, Mrs. That's all right. She didn't lose her sense of smell or taste, but I sure did. My mother-in-law continues to improve. Her ribs are healing up nicely, and there have been no more setbacks with her heart. And of course, she continues to require 24-7 accompaniment, and since uh, Mrs. SRH couldn't visit her, or take care of her because she didn't want to spread the COVID to her. Uh, it's been falling just upon my sister-in-law to uh, take care of her. Because it would have really been bad if my mother-in-law got sick with COVID. I don't know that she would make it through that. But thankfully, she has not gotten sick. Now the main goal is for her to reach the point where she doesn't need so much coverage. And I think we're almost there. She can do just about everything she used to be able to do. So, let's move on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received 23 new donations and pledges. I would like to thank Martin G. from London, who sent in another donation and moved to the Mars level. Stuart L. from Texas donated at the Orion level and earned a Galaxy Emoji. Marco M. from California donated at the Orion level and earned a Big Ten emoji. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington sent in another donation and moved to the Mere ISS level. Ian C. donated at the Vostok level. Esther D. donated at the Vostok level. Dolce M. donated at the Vostok level. Matthew M. donated at the Sputnik level. Sophia M. donated at the Sputnik level. Mark M. donated at the Sputnik level. Larissa M. donated at the Sputnik level. Hector M. donated at the Sputnik level. Monica M. donated at the Sputnik level. Charlene M. donated at the Sputnik level. Vincent M. donated at the Sputnik level. Julian M. donated at the Sputnik level. Marin M. donated at the Sputnik level. Vera M. donated at the Sputnik level. Manfred M. donated at the Sputnik level. Bjorn M. donated at the Sputnik level. And Tortoise M. donated at the Sputnik level. William A. 
from California increased his pledge on Patreon to the Voyager level. Mark N. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Salyut Skylab level. That's a lot of donors, and I'd like to say special thanks to Marco, and he, he's responsible for a lot of that. I know he was trying to, to help me reach my goal of two hundred and of uh, 380 donors this year. And I, I appreciate that, Marco. Marco's been such a great supporter of the podcast for uh, the whole time, practically. And I, I appreciate that, Marco. Thank you. Uh, the Patreon donors are currently at 230. I believe we started the year in the 250s. Started 2023 in the 250s. So we have lost quite a few supporters this year on Patreon, or either they they're not using Patreon anymore, one or the other. Uh, our total unique donors which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 366. So we're 14 shy of the 380 goal. To put that number in context, in 2019, before the dark times, before the vid, we had 487 donors, quite a bit. In 2020, I was shooting for 500 that year. We almost made it. We were 13 short. I remember that. In 2020, we had 443 donors. In 2021, we had 444. And in 2022, we had 380. A big drop there. And right now, we're at 366 unique donors. And the final goal is to reach 380 donors to match what we did in 2022. So we're about 14 donors left, and we've got a couple weeks left in December to reach that. So if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 and three-quarter years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And now is also a good time to begin the emoji maneuver. As we enter the end of the year, you can quickly earn a longevity emoji next to your name on the donors page. The idea is to make a donation now and a donation in January for next year and earn a rocket emoji or advance to the next emoji in your longevity collection. Where do you see those emojis? You see those emojis on the donors page. Take a look at the donors page over the web over the website and you will see a lot of people with a lot of emojis next to their name and that means that they've donated that many years. So uh, if you want an emoji, you can you can accomplish this in less than a month, less than a month, you can get an emoji besides your name or, or move to the next one, your next level, whatever that may be. We're going to come out with an 11th year emoji pretty soon here, next year. Doesn't that sound great? If you are unable to support financially, it would help if you could retweet the post on Twitter, now known as X, or repost my Facebook post, or write a good old five-star review on your podcatcher like Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever 
you like to listen to. All right. Today we are treated. Mrs. SRH is here today, and it is my distinct pleasure to hand it over to her for this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello and happy holidays, Space Rocket History friends. Remember me? Yes, <laughs> Mrs. SRH. Okay, the winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jorg Brendendike. Jorg Brendendike, if you will email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. If I didn't, my apologies. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Space Facts, the website, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. I will try to have episode number 430 posted on or before January 6th. And now, in keeping with tradition, I would like to play the Christmas message clip from Apollo 8 as they orbited the moon on Christmas Eve back in 1968. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. Merry Christmas, everyone, and happy holidays.